welcome back to Bardic Community College. Uh, this is Jordan. And this is Derek. And uh, we're doing another lit weekend, because, uh, you know, it's lit fam. Uh, and this time we're doing an off-color Douglas Adam books book that most of you probably have never read called Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency. Is there such a thing as an on-color Douglas Adams book? Okay, having said that and hoping you didn't say anything, no. I don't think there is such a thing as an on-color Douglas <laughs> Adams book. But this is very much outside of the regular wheelhouse. Because like everybody's read at least The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like It's, it's socio-political commentary and sort of life commentary at its finest while taking the absolute most obtuse like point of view possible. Whereas Dirk Gently's... Uh, I think we've described it as, and even uh, a lot of the book is derived from um, Adam's work on Doctor Who, that this is just a really awkward Doctor Who episode written as a short story. Um, but I love it. Well, it was, yeah, I was going to say, did it almost, wasn't it almost a Doctor Who script? I mean, so he wrote two serials for doctor who uh the canceled one was shada and then the other one was city of death um Mm -hmm. and the character the professor in dirk gently is actually the main character in shada so yeah and essentially it was a doctor who episode where things have just gone awry quite literally That definitely get gets more apparent as you read it. Um, I uh, so I have very little experience with um, Douglas Adams outside of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've read the first three, of which I believe there is five and a sixth that was not penned by Douglas <clears throat> himself due to being dead. Um, so there were the parts of the book. I believe that was the Salmon of Doubt. I don't know. I don't uh, so the trilogy has uh, five five point five books, I guess. If you're going to do it, um, you've got Hitchhiker's Guide, you've got Restaurant at the End of the Universe, you got So Long, Thanks for All the Fish, you've got uh, Mostly Harmless, and I believe Sam and Doubt was the fifth one. I could be getting these like really terribly wrong, um, but I don't think I am. I might be missing one. Oh yeah, because the last one is and another thing. Oh, life, the universe, and everything happens before so long, and thanks for all the fish. So it's uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, Life, the Universe, and Everything, So Long, and Thanks for All the Fish, Mostly Harmless, and another thing. The Salmon of Doubt, I think, was possibly another Dirk Gently book. I don't recall. Because it was going to be The Tea Time of the Soul. The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, yeah. The other one, yeah. Which, uh, I will say, if you thought this one was a little weird, uh... A little? Yeah, that one was <laughs> very odd. Uh, oh, Sam and Doubt was, uh, unpublished material, so it's just stuff he had sort of floating around. Mm, okay. Um, so, I like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've seen the 2005 movie, um... It's been a long time since I've read the other two, uh, or the other two that I've read, mostly, or not mostly harmless, Life, the Universe, and everything in the restaurant at the end of the universe. Mm -hmm. But the first book I do fondly remember, and, uh, you know, I I like the movie well enough. Um, I know. Well, they they do different things, the movie versus the books. And I'm not, like, I'm not a massive fan of the movie, but what it set out to do by itself, it did well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been quite a while since I've really dived back into that stuff. Um, now, as kind of stating with uh, when we were talking about Graveyard Book, I do have a great appreciation for uh, English writers, uh, kind of like that, um, especially... Uh, so Terry Pratchett is easily in my top five, you know, writers ever i love his stuff and um i think he like in some of his books he hits that perfect note of satire plus having an actually you know really rock solid book to go along with it that touches on 
notes of philosophy or or you know stuff that gets you thinking and you know i i didn't really think and you know I, I read these when i was probably in early high school i didn't really think about that a whole lot well when i when i look back on um hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i more remember it for the goofy stuff um <laughs> i well douglas adams his goofy stuff was done so intentionally that it's very tied into the point they're trying to make um like you can quote hitchhiker's guide uh for months like there's there's a lot of commentary about philosophy and how maybe it just doesn't matter like the the big famous one is you know in the beginning god created uh the universe and it was widely regarded as a very terrible move (laughs) um Um, and dirt gently has uh it's a little more fantastical if that makes sense like I know the Hitchhiker's Guide is a sci-fi book about, you know, some weird shit going on. And this one is a sci-fi story in a weird roundabout kind of way. So it's a sci-fi story that, okay, if Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is firmly playing with the rules that, you know, a sufficiently advanced science might as well be magic. And, you know, they, you know, you can just kind of do whatever with it in some cases, Hitchhiker, or Dirk Gently just kind of completely bypasses that and just has straight up supernatural magic bullshit. <laughs> it does. And if you and you haven't read The Long Dark Tea Time with the Soul, but it gets weirder. It is a significantly stranger book, um, which is why I actually didn't recommend that one off the rip. Like this one is this is my good. This is my favorite non non normal Douglas Adams book. And I, I use that term with big old air quotes. You can if you can feel me doing them. I feel them across the across the city. Yeah, so it's it's I, I understand that none of these are regular. So uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency is about a uh, detective, uh, kind of, who uh, I mean, <laughs> he shows up just, about yeah. a third of the way through the book. He's really more of uh, he's an absolute fucking yeah. con man. He's a con man. Like he's the guy who convinces your grandparents that like their dead relative is still trying to contact them through the grave and he's siphoning off their social security. Like he's, he's the kind of guy who the, uh, the Nigerian prince is based off of like quite literally like that. He's he's in it for the con. It's very weird because he is an unabashed con artist. He doesn't even try to pretend he really isn't. But he takes himself extraordinarily seriously on, you know, actually his detect his quote unquote detective work of once he seems to have his once he seems to be kind of latched onto something he does not give up. Um, but really, Dirk Gently isn't even in the book for the first half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about a third. Um, so it's majorly about uh, Richard McDuff. Uh, and Gordon Way and his sister Susan Way and minorly uh, other smaller characters. Like, the cast isn't very large in this book. Um, but it's really not about the cast. It's, it's the conversations. It's the dialogue that really pushes it forward. So uh, young Mr. McDuff is a software engineer who works for Gordon Way. Um, he has designed... And this was written in 87, so this is sort of the, the nonsense software they were making in the 80s. Uh, at its finest, they, so, they mentioned they mentioned Star Wars. Yeah, and, so he created a, pro, yeah, a software called Anthem, which is a spreadsheet, but it has a unique feature to convert corporate accounts into music. So it takes a corporation's spreadsheet and turns it into a jingle. And if that isn't the most '80s fucking thing you've ever heard in your life, mm-hmm. like it's ridiculous. Uh, and he also uh, has recently moved into a new apartment and has his couch impossibly stuck on an L-shaped stairway on his stairs. So anybody visiting him has to climb over the couch to get there. Uh, the couch is probably my favorite non-character in the book because it shows up a number of times. Uh, and every time it shows up, it is the most impossible to traverse object to whoever is there at the time like when the when the police are at his apartment it's absolutely fantastic 
So uh, he, uh, we start, I guess, at a dinner at uh, Saint Seds. Saint Seds, Saint Seds, which is definitely not Cambridge University. Yes, it is uh, definitely not "quote unquote" Cambridge. And they're all there for uh, a dinner on Samuel Taylor Coleridge, where they read a passage uh, of his works, uh, Kubla Khan. Um, and rhyme with the ancient mariner and i will go ahead and shout out uh taylor if you're listening to this that's where that's where that's where the albatross came from and that's why you're my albatross i have to wear you until i die apparently um but they sit through this dinner uh one of the other professors kind of uh makes it a uh, makes an impression on richard because uh, he does this weird magic trick um and but there's there's just a lot of kind of talking back and forth and then we cut back to gordon who is driving his car <clears throat> the most like with a car phone which is maybe the most 80s thing i can think of and the cool thing about gordon and they explain this to you very honest he is he leaves voicemails like on cassettes so like the way he talks through ideas as a software developer owner in the 80s is he leaves these 30 or 40 minute long messages on your voicemail and then he has a secretary go around and collect them the next morning. So, like, <laughs> it's just weird. Like, the guy is about as, like, abstract, eccentric millionaire as you're going to get, Right. kind of a shame that he dies the first chapter that we meet him so the uh the short run through is that uh richard is suspected to have killed gordon uh he is also uh the specific girl that richard is not married to i believe is the way it's described in the book uh so they're on off engaged like they're very much in love with each other but they're also absolutely idiots um and that is some of probably my favorite dialogue that comes across is between richard and susan because it's very organic but it's also just absolutely like oh wow this is what people really are like like outside of the comedic factor you're like okay these people can't communicate to save their asses and it's really kind of jarring to actually read it. So uh, he is suspected to have killed uh, Gordon Way, who is Susan Way's brother, uh, also his boss. And he goes on uh, several runs across town trying to avoid uh, investigation or at least being arrested by the police. Uh, and after a chance phone call while he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, he gets uh, he gets uh, alerted to his old friend, uh, now under a new name, Dirk Gently. I, I believe it's Sylvad Shelley. It's Vlad Shelley. Vlad Shelley. Um, and he decides to go uh, investigate. So, for whatever reason, he decides that he's going to break into Susan's apartment to get <laughs> a voicemail that he left because he was like, oh, I didn't mean that. I should go get that because she hadn't checked her machine yet. So he gets there and gets a call from Dirk, who is giving him several very long questions as to why does he think he's breaking into someone's house. And it's, it's a little asinine. Like, it's definitely weird. Um, and this is sort of Douglas Adams in a, in a very small nutshell. Um, is that the dialogue tends to be very bitey at moments in reality where it would not normally happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the short of the conversations are very good. It, it always struck me as you're kind of like stuck in little bits of like as if the dialogue comes off as if you were watching a Monty Python sketch that kind of like segued into another uh, sketch and the first so, sketch yeah, just was aware of the second sketch and kept moving yeah it, it's well it like like he gets a call from uh dirk gently while he's breaking into somebody's house to listen to a voicemail and dirk gently is like yeah i can't i don't understand why you would do that it's just the most like wild thing and 
that's the kind of and that's the kind of thing that um, this book it does repeatedly is have these sort of weird conversations or back and forth like um, kind of acknowledgement of some of the strangeness going on before in that very characteristic British like well we're just gonna roll with it. <laughs> It's, um, Douglas Adams has a very particular way with inter-character dialogue. Um, usually, like, if you break into somebody's house and you get a call from somebody who is watching you, your general response isn't to have a very short, snide conversation with them. So, like, there, there's, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief. Um, so during this time, uh, Gordon Way is, uh, stranded out in the middle of nowhere and opens his trunk and gets shot, uh, by our favorite character uh that has never seen again the electric monk oh yeah let's not forget about the electric monk who is also introduced on a horse uh having to try to figure out how to believe in things and sometimes failing sometimes succeeding who somehow finds his way to earth that's not really important well the the funny thing about the electric monk isn't necessarily uh, so what was it? So the quote is, so the monks were built for an eye with an eye for originality of design and also for practical horse riding ability. This was important. People and indeed things <laughs> looked more sincere on a horse. So like they're getting back to sort of like biblical, like if a guy rides up to you on a horse and says something, it's probably true, which is sort of rung true several times in history, like Paul Revere, etc. One um, of the best, one of the best, like one of the best, like lines is it was even beginning to believe things they'd have difficulty believing in salt lake city which is a, oh, wow. which is a, <laughs> a really wild uh, yeah really wild um shot at somebody when you're telling the mormons that like listen this this is something you guys aren't even going to get in on like you know it's gotten bad so uh so two legs were held to be both more suitable and cheaper than the more normal primes of 17 19 or 23 the skin of the monks was given a pinkish look instead of purple, smooth and soft instead of crenulated. They also restricted, were also restricted just one mouth and nose, but were given instead an additional eye, making for a grand total of two. Uh, a strange-looking creature indeed, but truly excellent at believing the most preposterous things. Which, yes, that's a person. <laughs> he, it's, he 100% just, it's a person. And that's sort of the weird analog that you get a lot when the electric monk is involved, and it sort of flies in a lot of uh, Dirk Gently's monologues, too. Anyway, they... Eventually, we, we finally get to Richard and Dirk meeting up at Dirk's detective agency, um, to which we're introduced to a secretary that is just kind of staying there out of spite because Dirk doesn't pay her, but she doesn't do any work for him. Um, uh, who guy... also, in the in the time that Richard is there, is both hired, fired, and retired four different times. Um, there's one guy coming down the stairs who's like, ah, oh, he's a waste of your time. And he walks in on Dirk attempting, uh, like, explaining to an old woman who he's been working with for a long time why, uh, why he still hasn't found her cat. And why he had to go to the Bahamas to find it. Bermuda? It was, it was Bermuda. yeah, it was Bermuda. And he's hot um, on the trail of this cat. But anyway, um, and at this point, I think to kind of keep going would would really sort of just spoil the part of the fun of the book. Uh, yeah, so like, post-Dirk yeah. post and Richard's first meeting, things take a very bizarre series of turns. So I, I definitely wouldn't want to run people through that too much. Because a lot of the surprise, like, like in, in short, without giving away too much, like, I didn't really tell you a whole lot about the book going in. So, like... Once it started falling into place, like, what kind of experience was it for you? So, like, I, it kind of took me a while to get into the book, because it was the kind of thing where I'd pick it up, read a chapter or two while I was doing other stuff, and then kind of put it down, and then have to come back, and I'd have to reread a little bit just to remember what had happened. Um, 
and I've I've really gotten the habit nowadays of not looking at TV tropes or Wikipedia or anything else while I'm reading a thing, so that I can experience it as you know, quote unquote, like like purely as possible, you know, with only my own whatever I take in and not having as you know an idea of what's going to happen. So. Around the part where Dirk gently actually shows up is really where I get invested in the book. Um, and made me want to read, you know, just made me want to read it all the way to the end. Once he kind of shows up and starts taking control of the plot. I, and I say that loosely. Um, yeah, because no one ever really takes control of the plot. Like, it's just sort of its own <clears throat> wild beastie. But once he shows up, the whole thing is kind of more realized because now you have an active force who is sort of kind of connecting the strings that are going on between all the random stuff that's been introduced. Like we gave you a, a, a little description of the basic plot up to a point, but that's not even like there's so many diversions on the way to get there. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, like you're, yeah. you're out almost 120 pages at this point. And there's a horse in a bathroom. There's a horse there's, in a bathroom. There's a guy. Who there's gets, a goat. There's, there's a ghost flying around. There's a trying to, yeah. There's a uh, there's a house explosion. Uh, there's an explanation on why I believe it was Bach. Yeah, Bach doesn't exist in the timeline currently. <laughs> uh, like, there's a lot of really weird things that you have to sort of take in stride because you're like, this is none of this seems to have anything to do with fucking anything, and that's sort of the whole shtick of the book is Dirk believes that everything is sort of connected in a way that people don't understand. And, like, that's, that's and his whole shtick. Yeah. And I'm going to actually say that we're going to have a little spoiler section towards the end to talk about how things develop. Probably not even a little one, but um, really the plot is it's the kind of thing where you're thrown a lot of weird unrelated things at the beginning of the book and then things all kind of coalesce towards the end and it all starts to make sense um there is kind of a, a real point where you finally go oh all right now now i can kind of see where things fit together but until then the book's kind of like assaulting you with like kind of just weird snippets until it starts kind of pulling... It's almost like a barely connected anthology until probably about the, what, the 60% mark? Like, I, I would assume the, where's the time machine is really, like, the hit. Oh, that was a big spoiler, but, um... There, yeah, but at this point, you have no idea why. Yeah, um... And I, I think we'll, we'll put a little pin on talking about the plot, uh, for a little later. Um... I will say is that a lot of there are a lot of great moments of so it's you know it's very easy to say this thing this book was funny I liked that it was funny but I think what's important is to talk about how it's funny and like you know what kind of like because that was the thing that was kind of keeping me going even when I wasn't really invested because uh, every few like honestly it feels like the kind of thing where every few paragraphs you'll get a joke and sometimes it's a very like low-hanging fruit but you know they're well written and you get um and again you get that kind of monty python absurdity where you start um where you just you know it'll introduce an idea and then the characters will kind of just underreact to it and then it moves on <laughs> Well, like there are there are snippets in the book where it's it's Adam's really magical way of stating something and then overstating something in a very bizarre and comedic way, because like bad fan fiction works that way, right? Like somebody who writes like like he looked at something with his human eyes and boy, you could tell they were human. Like like Terry <laughs> Pratchett and Douglas Adams have this magic about them where. They can say the same thing, but it doesn't quite mean the same thing. Like, they have a way around it. Like, uh, in the beginning, after Gordon Way gets shot, he says, Gordon Way's astonishment at being suddenly shot dead was nothing compared to the astonishment at what happened next. Yeah. Which is and, a and, crazy scene, but it, yeah, it's... 
it's, it's again, it's that understatement. I think if you wanted a really good example of comedic understatement, this is the book to read. Oh, yeah. Like, you don't really understand, like, you don't think the gags are going to hit as hard as they do. Um, like, high on a rocky promontory sat an electric monk on a bored horse. <laughs> and, like, once yeah. the horse is also a really good character in the book for completely non-related reasons. <laughs> I did, like, a bunch, of, a bunch of the best, like, funny lines out of context are with the electric monk. The door was the way good. Capital letters were always the best way of dealing with things you didn't have a good answer to. Yeah, and and Douglas Adams does this a lot. So like he felt like an old sponge steeped in paraffin and left in the sun to dry. He turned slowly like a fridge door opening, and you're like, what? Or like he was rounder than the average undergraduate and wore more hats. That is to say, there was just the one hat which he habitually wore, but he wore it with a passion that was so rare and young, one so young. Yeah, you know? like you're just like these things are just so bizarre. And this is a very, I, I say this is a very literate book. This is a very, it, it honestly is a very technical book because it, you know, there's a lot of references to computer jargon and an understanding of, you know, programming and, again, music. You, you know, some very hard science literature itself. That yeah, it, are, it definitely broaches a lot of... Um material like it really like yeah, now that you, you mentioned know, that it really does you know once they mentioned they were talking about samuel taylor coleridge i was like aha at last my <laughs> time to shine yeah, but those of you who don't know he is an english major um unfortunately <laughs> did you like the uh uh did you like the uh the man from porlock at the very end reference yeah i that was that was one hell of a punchline. It was, wasn't it? Like, you waited the entire book to figure out why that's important. And then you go, okay, you fucking got me. You know, and this book, again, it it honestly comes off. You mentioned fan fiction earlier. There are, like... It feels like a really... Like, it feels like an almost believable Doctor Who fanfic. Like, that's sort of the essence of it. If you like, if you took out, if you took out a little bit of the absurdity in some cases, then this could just be Doctor Who fan fiction, albeit one in which there is no Doctor Who fucking. So, kind of surprised there. Ah, yes, the Doctor Who who fucks, whom fucks, whom's to the fucks. Uh, um. So, what are what are like, I guess some other things with the book structure or. I guess <laughs> themes that we can kind of talk about before we we get into the balls deep spoilers. Um, I think a lot of things about the book are <clears throat> people definitely when it came out said that it was a little too hitchhikers for the same thing. Like it's a good uh, a good comic romp, but. It seemed to be a little thin at times, and I you you do get that feeling in the book. Like it's three hundred odd pages, like three oh, like so my, six to three ten. I for the for the record, I'm reading this off of the Kindle, which I think is the most recent printing. Back when they did the TV series on the BBC, because uh, it has the 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 book cover is I guess with the actors from it. Um, so it's a pretty light read, like it. You know, I wasn't, when I was reading it, it probably took me like three three and change, three hours and change if I wasn't distracting myself. That was kind of the, that was kind of the issue I had. It's a really fun palate cleanser book, I would think, if you just got done reading something kind of heavy. Or alternatively, you got done, you wanted to read something that has a bunch of very, very nerdy things around it. Yeah, because it, um, it encompasses a lot. You've got, you know, weird 80s software uh, jargon, which it's really heavy on in really weird ways. Um, like, you get a lot of Apple and IBM jargon from the 80s, and if you're not, if you didn't, like, sort of grow up around that stuff, like, you're going to be like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but, exactly. it's, but they make, they try their best to not really beat you over the head with, like, this was just how it was. Like, they try to give, Douglas Adams tries to give you, like, 
some minor walkthrough as to why things were the way they were. It definitely wasn't unapproachable. Um, I like the... Again, I, I kind of like how it sets up a mystery and true to the title of the story, it does kind of broach this grand interconnectedness. And that's a theme that you kind of come back to is this, you know, on some level, everything is related and they're, you know, and it, as the characters do kind of experience later, that feeling of connection to everything is, you know, important and it it helps you derive meaning from a otherwise chaotic and crazy universe um which i think is actually something that it does over hitchhiker's guide where i feel like hitchhiker's guide is you know never really reaches the point to me where it seems as sincere as this book does in some bits um i think it's touch and go. I think later on in Hitchhiker's Guide, like especially um, Life, the Universe, and everything, um, you get to feel the that one is probably the heavier book of the series, um, just because it deals with a lot of like death and mortality and like subtly realizing like like time works in weird ways that you may not understand, and like they have a lot of recurring themes from the other books that finally come to a head in that one, and you go, okay, that shit was weird, um, but. I, Dirk feels like, like you said, it's a more honest approach. Um, I don't want to call it like almost a childlike approach because like Douglas Adams sort of has that feel about some of his stuff anyway. Um, but it definitely is like a softer hand at approaching some of these themes that like Hitchhiker's Guide is because some of Hitchhiker's Guide stuff is just like we're giving you this theme, we hope you appreciate it, and we're off. And we're off. <laughs> um, I do think uh, to to do a little bit of criticisms on the book, uh, just you know, before we get to the spoiler section, so people can you know choose to tune out. Um, I do think that what um, I do think that part of the issue with the book is that it feels very scattered at the beginning. So, and for me, it was a little bit of it was a little bit of a hurdle. I had to I had to kind of like. You know, I don't want to say force myself to read because it's not like I didn't have fun reading this, but kind of get myself into the space to read it. Yeah, um, and you don't really like the beginning is a little scattered, so you don't. It doesn't draw you in as strongly as other books, like the opening chapter of Hitchhiker's Guide, where like Arthur is laying in front of his house in front of a, a bulldozer. It's it's a, a very grabbing opening, and they don't really do that. He, they definitely do not do that in Dirk. Like, they're trying to expand this weird little bit of exposition here and there that makes a huge return in the back quarter of the book. Yeah, I think the book... Um, I want to say the book kind of struggles on presenting character. I feel like... Once, like, Dirk himself kind of outshines everybody, except for maybe Professor Reg. Um, but I don't really particularly care too much for any of the other characters. I did sort of grow to like Richard Moore as the book went, um, but he's kind of the Arthur in the situation. He's kind of, like, the straight man. Um, kind of, yeah. Like, there are points where Richard is absurd almost to the point of fantastical um especially with his responses to like susan um but that that's always like that's sort of the weird human element that ties everything down um like reg is probably the best character in the book the professor is interesting um and you get um you get a few more characters of note it's but none that really stick with you too much like Susan's mostly just there to be a romantic interest for Richard. Well, she um, she ends up giving Dirk a couple of really solid things that he hadn't realized. Um, and he she also has a couple of very good interactions with uh, Richard and Dirk, too. Um, but yeah, she's only in the book for, I don't know, 20 or 30 pages? Like, it's really kind of a, a brief overview at best. Mm-hmm. Um... I do think that uh, your enjoyment of the book kind of hinges on how much you understand the references and the 
um, you know, that and how much you can appreciate it on that without having to, you know, be told what the joke is. Uh, like, I got very excited when they started talking, uh, again, Coleridge, but, you know, the computer stuff, I'm just like, all right, whatever. <laughs> um, and I think, and, you know, and you can feel free to, you know, jump in on me on that, but uh, I feel like if you were not a very particularly literate person or you, you know, you've got the computer and hard science kind of understanding that the, the book would give you that you would be getting less from the book. They're, they don't really broach the topics deep enough to get people who aren't really at least cursorily interested in certain things. So the, the barrier of entry to some of it, it's a little hard because you won't get like the little nuts and bolts jokes. Um, but it's decent. Like it's definitely a read. I, and honestly, um, and I don't know if you have any intention on, it's a better second read than it is first. And I don't normally like that style, um, mm-hmm. but the book really comes together, funnily enough, once you know what the what the flourish is. Now, I've, I've basically read it one and a half times doing this, so because I went back to look for my choice cuts. Yeah. Um, but... I you know I could probably see myself picking up picking this up again some other time, and there are a lot of books you know. I'm a big believer that the first experience you have with something is this kind of magical thing, and you can't and a a work if you are only meant to understand things on the second or third time around, you know I feel like it loses a little bit. Um. I can like agree if that, that is that is how the if that is how the work is intended to be written and reread is to be, you know, is that your only things that you are going to get the second time around, and it's not the kind of thing that as you're reading you kind of pull yourself back to. If I could take a if I could take a controversial and contemporary example, it's one of the best parts of the Harry Potter books is being rewarded with remembering the things that are foreshadowed and she does it to the kind of absurd degree where it's it's very hard not to do it it's very hard not to see the foreshadowing um as you go on through the book series well she definitely sort of same-handed a lot of the foreshadowing too like it was it generally tended to be very obvious when she was doing it um but and, you know, those books are also the kind of things that do, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that not all, that, you know, all fiction, you know, everything you read usually does benefit from a second read-through because there are things that you learn to pick up on the second time and you come back to every work a stronger reader. Uh, but I feel like in this case there are a lot of things where you're kind of lost for the first half when you read it and then it all kind of coalesces and then when you reread it you find a lot of extra jokes or references to things that only make sense having read the end of the book um and with that regard uh is there anything else you want to say before we switch over to uh hardcore spoilers yeah so um there's also a tv show uh that was done by the bbc i believe it had uh two or three seasons let me look. Um, it's got Elijah Wood and Samuel Barnett in the title roles. Um, it's got Daniel Radcliffe. It, it does have Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> and uh, Elijah Wood is actually fantastic. Like, the, the show itself is actually very strong. Um, who so does he play? Uh, he plays Todd Brotsman, who is a very unique character in the the show. Like, the show is very separate from the books. They really don't tread over the same ground. Does it basically just take the premise and make its own thing? Um, it makes Dirk a thing and runs with that. Is it worth watching? Yeah. Honestly. Um, I will, I will actually say before the spoiler corner... I do think it's a good book. I do think it's a, a good read, and if you like science fiction and especially weird science fiction, weird science, um, it's weird. Science. A lot of it's a lot of fun. It it definitely it made me laugh. It'll to quote a a certain Simpsons joke. It makes you laugh. It makes you think. <laughs> but um, it's 
I don't think I would definitely. I don't. I think I would probably recommend this. Uh, actually, before Hitchhiker's Guide One, and that's only on the basis of it. Just gets once you get to the end, it it hits you like a brick. It's <laughs> nothing is gonna ever take away from you know getting to the end of it and being kind of wowed. But yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide is a pretty good read too. Um, it's just more consistent. I, I, it's more of a I think solid, I, steady read. Yeah, and I think I, I think what again what makes me come back to this one is um, that that feeling of interconnectedness, that theme. Um, and these that's what will get me coming back, along with trying to figure out all the jokes I missed on the second time around. Um, so it's it's definitely worth your time, and you can get it, you know for the price of just about any book nowadays, which is like 10 bucks or maybe less if you go to a used bookstore. Oh, yeah. You could easily find a, a, a rabbit-eared paperback copy of this thing for a couple of bucks at a used bookstore. So uh, I guess we'll have like a quick spoiler session. And before we go to that, um, hot take, Doctor Who sucks, fight me. Boy, I wish I had an opinion on that. And uh, now let's all go to the lobby and come back for some spoilers. That was the kick. uh, Everybody got their snacks. I'm sure somebody tweeted at me. So, how about uh, Space Ghost? uh, (laughs) Ghost to Ghost and Dirk Gently. Yeah, so, um, Douglas Adams has mentioned a couple of times the ending of the book is a curious thing that he's not... Like, it made a lot of sense to him at the time. um, And right now, he's just like, I'm not sure how it ended up that way. Um, and that was as early as, like, you know, a, a couple of years before he died because he was working on the, the screenplay for Dirk Gently. And people, and it's a big concern um, because, like, is it cute? Sure. Is it sudden? Sure. Does it make any sense? No. Like, it just doesn't make any goddamn sense. But it uh, does end up being, like, probably one of the coolest little scenes ever. Because Dirk Gensley's like, time traveling is involved and you're haunted by a ghost, and I'm going to show you why. Um, so, I don't even know if he finds out about that ghost until the, like, the very end. Until, um, like, he talks with Professor Reg. So, by the way, Professor Reg is a Time Lord. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was written as a Time Lord in the Drop Doctor Who episode. Uh, and this is just a weird way of doing it. And the only reason he time travels is because he doesn't know how to program his VCR to record the TV episodes that he wants to watch. Well, that's all he does with it now. And he mentions that every time he time travels, he messes with the phone and has to get call it in to get fixed. Yeah, so he just um, honestly doesn't have a phone anymore. Well, it's it's one of the best. It's one of the best like um, turns that I've read in a like that I've read where it's like. It's like, what do you mean? How did you do it? It's like, it's like, Dirk Gently's just like, where's the time machine? He's like, you're sitting right in it. And yeah, and it, it, way, it doesn't really explain what the time machine is other than, I guess, just his office and controlled by his abacus. But it's essentially like looking at it through a Doctor Who lens. Essentially, it's just a TARDIS. Like, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Like, and if you look at it like that, it makes a little more sense and you don't have to go over it quite as hard. Like, it doesn't. Like, there's a little bit of crossover suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. I mean, your your sense of, your sense of your willing suspension of disbelief is probably extremely high by the time you get to that point. Oh, oh yeah, things thing weirder fucking things have happened by the time you get to that point in the book. Um, there's so much crazy bullshit in this book, but like, you get to. You get to Dirk Gently and Richard have, at this point, been trying to put clues together. And they managed to stumble on that, apparently, what Professor Reg did, according to Dirk Gently, when he did a, a weird magic trick back at the, um... Uh, back at, at, at the uh, dinner, in the very yeah. beginning, Reg does this, uh, like, magic it, trick yeah. to a little girl to entertain her. 
and and he decides it's impossible. So yeah, he's like, Richard well, explains the whole thing, and like Dirk goes, "There is absolutely no way that happened." <laughs> um, and it's and he's like, "Oh well, how did you find out?" Because he like Professor uh, because Reg just like goes off. He describes what he did. You know, in a terms that you don't quite understand. Like, I didn't understand what he was talking about until Dirk finally said it. But he was like, how did you find out? Oh, I just asked a little girl, and, or I asked some kid on the street about how he, how it would happen. And he was like, he was like, I got it, mate. It must have been time travel and blew me off. And then I was like, oh, so I don't know how you did it, but that's the only way it makes sense. So Well, he explains that uh, children don't operate through the same lenses of reality the filters that we develop as adults to be like, well, that's just fantastical. That doesn't make any sense. So a child would give you a different answer to the same question because it's whatever makes sense to them, which is usually the purest form of the answer, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's cute. And uh, Dirk uh, is still, he... So Dirk used to go to St. Seds. And... He had a get-rich scheme in college that ended up getting him kicked out. So he created rumors about him having clairvoyant abilities. And then he spent like a year in college telling everybody that that was bullshit and nobody should believe it. So inevitably, everybody believes it. So he eventually offers a university prep for exam. And he gets arrested and sent to prison because by 100% coincidence he duplicated the exam papers for the entire year with having never once seen the answer sheets turns out he's just good at studying and making educated guesses but it wasn't even that like he was just full of shit and then he went to prison for it and that's why like this whole book is just like that premise by itself should do, like, it's totally endearing. Like, what did Dirk do? It's like, uh, he went to prison by accident. <laughs> um, but, so, the book hits you with, oh yeah, there's a time machine, and <laughs> they mention, and he's like, oh yeah, there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do with a time machine, but he goes back to watch TV shows, and he also... Killed the dil, killed the. Do- I almost said dildo. He killed the dodo. He did kill it by, by trying to because he wanted to save the coelacanths, which is. <laughs> I thought that's delightful. It, there's um, a, there are a lot of like once they once the time traveler turn happens. There's a lot of very colorful, lovely things in the book. And not only has uh, Gordon been going around the book as a ghost. But the aliens mentioned all the way back in uh, when they were talking about the electric monk. Not only are they, you know, also a thing, but, well, specifically, there is one of them that is a ghost who got on a spaceship, you know, drove drove by Earth or whatever, uh, landed on Earth, or crashed into Earth, caused uh, life to spring up on Earth, and has been spending all of the the time since life began on earth as a ghost trying to not do this not do it which is very much like if that's not a hitchhiker's guide turn about the whole you know god created the universe and everybody regarded it as a bad idea like that's literally what happened (laughs) yeah so there's not only one ghost but there's two ghosts one of them's a space ghost and (laughs) one of them is a space ghost and you get so much and you get so much mileage towards the end out of okay so these three guys have a time machine and they find this guy who is possessed by the space ghost and the guy who is possessed by the space ghost says in the space ghost voice you know I am so tired of being on this shithole and he's like why don't we just use the time machine to let you go back and you know fix things and then they find out that doing so would basically cause um would basically cause all life on Earth to end. Yeah. So that's bad. But then to fix it, they have to stop the ghost from being able to possess people and for them to even get the inkling that the ghost exists. If I'm not mistaken, Jordan. Mm-hmm. 
So they go back to 1800, like 1815 or whatever, to when Samuel Taylor Coleridge is writing Kubla Khan. Who is to his his currently possessed yeah. by go the ghost. Dirk goes to his house, knocks on his door, says, I'm the man from Porlock, and leaves. That's it! That's all he says! He says, I'm the man from and, and, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge can then not write the second half of Kubla Khan because he got interrupted, causing the, you know, causing, you know, an entire string of events to never happen in the present. Um... And I'm just sitting there going, and which, by the way, another plot point was that um, Kublai Khan and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge are both, like, things that he writ while under the possession of the Space Ghost, specifically to tell people how to find his spaceship and the pain he is feeling right now. Which is and, a wild fucking turn. And... Um, and basically they make a future where they never did any of that bs they're back at you know they're back at england and apparently sebastian bach is now a very popular composer uh but kuba khan's second half never came out just like in the real world and well it's funny because like if you look at it the first half of the book is technically an altered as an unaltered universe and then the reality of the book which is actual reality is an altered universe because it's a fucking Doctor Who episode. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> oh, it makes my brain hurt. Also, but... at the very end, and this is the, my favorite part of the book, Gently learns that the cat that he had been leading this woman on about for a fucking decade has not gone missing. So he sends her a revised bill that says, To saving the human race from total extinction, no charge. <laughs> what a dick. What an uh, absolute fucking madman. Um, and there's lots of moments like that of Dirk Gently being kind of an asshole, but... Kind of an asshole very, is a very soft way of putting it. He is usually he's a, a very... He's, he's a very... He's a, he's a, he's a very a affluent asshole. Not affluent, affable. Affluent would imply that he has money, which he doesn't. We think he does. He at least has enough money to get pizza, but that's about it. Well, only if he makes fucking. Only if he makes Richard pay for it. Um. But, man, it is such a weird turn by the end of it. It's, yeah. Once once you hit like the eighty percent of the book, you're like time travel, and then things get weirder. Yeah, when it's like, <laughs> I think I think the again like. They find a space ghost. <laughs> they do find a space ghost. And then what was the other one? There's no point in using the word impossible to describe something that has clearly happened. But, like, we, we really have reached the Aqua Teen Hunger Force of the the, the the robot ghost from, like, Christmas future past or whatever. Yeah. The like, robotic ghost from, from, future, from Christmas's future past? 10,000 years before Sigourney Weaver, that one? Yeah. <laughs> Like that is literally the that is literally the bad guy in this book, and why all everything bad has happened, you know, and, and apparently why Kubla Khan was written. And it has, and it it's it's whimsical. It is a little dry. It's British humor. Like I get it, but it's got a couple of rallying moments in the book where, like you said earlier, like you would read something and be like, I don't know if I'm so into this, and then you read the next line and be like, All right, well, I have to see where this conversation goes. It's the kind of thing where, for a lot of it, you can kind of sum up my reaction as, eh. <laughs> what? And like keep reading, like every, like, like what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what? Well, it's what? What is it? Let's think the unthinkable. Let's do the undoable. Let us prepare to grapple with the ineffable itself and see if we may not eff it after all. See, like this is like what would happen if you took the Twilight Zone and Doctor Who, hit, put them into a blender, hit puree threw in a couple tabs of LSD and taped them over with Monty Python. That's like, <laughs> that's this whole book. And the horse, it must be said, was quite surprised. <laughs> oh yeah, the electric monk's horse is the same horse that's in the bathroom and, ca- and not Cambridge. Yep, and then he's in the police station because they had to arrest the horse because they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> 
Like the whole the whole turn with the horse is just like it's my favorite hero's journey of any book ever. <laughs> the hero's journey of the horse. Yeah, it's fucking um, great. It's a it's a ride. It it really turns into an absolute ride by the end. Um, but I and, and again in that absurdity, because this feels to me less like a satire than. Uh, a farce you know what i mean yeah um i do think you know you do kind of get the man everything really is connected feeling at the end <laughs> well i mean and when it's written specifically that way like up until the the time machine reveal everything was very dire like things did not look like they were going to work out and then they did and it got weirder <laughs> they sure did they sure did get weird um Oh boy, it's, I, you know, and again, it's spoiling this book has the side effect of then making earlier parts of it easier to understand, but again, you get, um, I do think there is something very magic about reading it and then, you know, getting towards the end and being like, wow, there really is a fucking space ghost in this book <laughs> and there's a time traveler. Yeah. Like, um, like I said, I, I'm not a huge fan of like the second consumption of media is better but the second reading of this book really makes a lot of crazy sense it definitely it definitely makes more sense that's <laughs> it makes it make more sense um so. i think going i think going forward it's the kind of thing where um it's you know it's comedy is a hard thing to grade but I was laughing and, you know, having a lot of fun with the book, even when I was kind of like, okay, I don't really care about these people. Um, but, uh, you know, and humor is very subjective, but it's the kind, and there's not really a whole lot I can say other than it's funny, but, you know, once you kind of get past that, once you really break into the absurdity, once it, you know, becomes unambiguously a fucking speculative fiction, you know, you know like craziness that's when the book really does kind of all come together and um yeah you mentioned that like douglas adams is like i'm not so sure about the ending anymore um i'm not saying that it makes a whole lot of sense um because it kind of again requires you to have an understanding of um samuel taylor coleridge and be able to make the you know your own kind of leaps and logic on how it ends and what really has been accomplished. Uh, like I could be getting totally wrong. What happened? Uh, I'm surprised Jordan hasn't like uh, actually me, but <laughs> well, because in this particular instance, like everything comes down in a very specific manner and there is a little bit of interpretation at the end. You generally know what happened, but there are a couple of instances of the events that come up to right at the end where you're like, but what was that? And I, I think it's better to leave that up to the reader because there's not like, does it end pretty objectively? Yeah. Like it, it, it definitely has a very strict sense of this is how the book ends, but there are a couple of like hiccups before that where you're like, okay, well did they do that or did it get, did it get erased? And, and I will like, say it is, it is hard to keep track of the internal chronology while you're reading it because it does bounce around a lot and you don't necessarily know when it starts on what's going to be important, what isn't. Um, so you got to kind of take that. I think again, it, it really is a book that I imagine is better on the second time around, but it is a very fun read. It is definitely a funny read. Um, even if there are only parts of the themes that you were really interested in, um, Douglas Adams has a very good British sense of humor, so it works out. And with that, I, I think we're pretty much at a at an agreement. And uh, yeah, if you like reading other Douglas Adams works, if you like weird speculative fiction, you know, with a sense of humor, go check out Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And remember that you too also may believe things that other things may find preposterous. <laughs>